Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill. And joining me in studio this week from Motley Fool Rule Breakers and Million Dollar Portfolio, Simon Erickson, and from Million Dollar Portfolio, Jason Moser and Matt Argusinger. Good to see you as always, gentlemen. Hey, yes, sir. <laughs> we have got some blowout earnings from Wall Street. Kayla Tausche from CNBC is our guest. And as always, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. We began last week's show with Walmart. This week, we begin with the only retailer that is bigger. And that's Amazon. The company reported a third quarter profit when Wall Street was expecting a loss, and the stock hitting an all-time high on Friday. Jason, this this wasn't one of those beat by a penny kind of profit <laughs> quarters. This was just destroy expectations quarters. No, there wasn't really any question. I'm glad you let off with Walmart. Though. You know, it's funny. Like just at the end of July, we were making a big deal about how Amazon had surpassed Walmart in market cap. I mean, Amazon is now a clean $100 billion bigger after this. That's remarkable. Yeah. I mean, it's just like in the blink of an eye. And I mean, I think, you know, the headlines we're we're talking about are Amazon Web Services. And to be sure, I think that's the big story with Amazon today. They lifted a hood uh, a few quarters ago to give us a better idea of how big it is, how big it will get, how profitable it is. And, you know, it, it was responsible for more than half of the total segment operating income this quarter. The the thought that one day Amazon Web Services could actually surpass Amazon's core retail operations is pretty amazing to think about. And I think the market certainly is looking at that as a as a possibility. Uh, it's it's at a run rate today of about seven and a half billion dollars in revenue and very profitable operating margin in the twenty five percent range. The one thing I want to call out here, though, I think it kind of slips under the radar. Is you know Amazon does a very good job with its third-party selling uh, platform, where they're kind of helping other people sell things, and and so you know we saw a big uh, reduction in sort of in in operating expenses this quarter versus last quarter. It's four to five percentage points lower, and a lot of that was due to this growth in the third-party sellers, which continues to whittle away at that expense side and really helps boost the profitability of their retail operations. And so I think when you have that. To look forward to, along with his Amazon Web Services behemoth that just continues to bring results, and there are a lot of reasons I think to be optimistic about this company, and uh, you know I think the market is is expressing that. Yeah, you know, and even uh, even Prime Day, which we I don't know, we kind of joked about when it happened uh, yeah. this past summer, that added two percentage points to uh, Amazon's revenue growth, and that is something they can just turn on. You know, on the dime and say, hey, you know, we're going to do another Prime Day, we're going to do another big special. And uh, it's just, but yeah, you said it, uh, Jason. I just think it's remarkable. I mean, from a profitability standpoint, there's no doubt that AWS is already beating the, the overall e commerce business. Um, but at the growth rate it's going, I don't definitely think AWS is probably going to be bigger in, yep. in several years. And, and Prime is such an important part too. I mean, Amazon has done such a great job of bringing value to those customers, and they stick around, and their retention rates of that are very high, and that's really good for the business economics too. Absolutely. Alphabet, the parent company of Google, hitting an all-time high this week after third quarter profits came in higher than expected, and Simon. Some people were wondering how the new corporate structure was going to work out, and looks like it's working fine. It is doing pretty well. Uh, you know, if we if we did a Google search of Alphabet's results here, and we, we'd come up with prioritization, I think, is, is the top entry on this one. Ruth Porat comes in, CFO now of uh, of Alphabet, and uh, she's basically prioritized every project at Google, saying, "Hey, we might have seventy three billion dollars on the balance sheet, but we're not just going to bring out the credit card for anything out here. Every project has a line item and an expected profitability and future revenue impact that's associated with that." And she's just basically going down the list and saying, "Hey, we're not 
averse to big acquisitions. We're still going to be Google, now Alphabet, but we're going to be looking at those with a lot more scrutiny, and investors love to see that. Uh, also announced a first stock buyback plan. Uh, the $5 billion mark, I don't know. I, I looked at that, and I thought, gosh, for all the money Google has, you could buy back more stock than that. <laughs> and Chris, it's even better than that. It's actually $5.099 billion. Oh, well, they, they've I was gone way to three off. decimals on this one. Uh, again, they think their stock's undervalued. Let's put some money behind it and put a repurchase plan in place. Shares of Microsoft up more than 10% on Friday after first quarter profits. Once again, I'm, I'm sensing a refrain here from the big tech companies. Profits higher than expected, much higher, Maddie. And the new Windows 10 operating system running on 110 million devices. This is a blowout quarter for Microsoft. It was. And when's the last time you could say Microsoft was up 10% uh, on an earnings move? And, and by the way, all time high. Surpassing the high, finally, that they had 15 years ago in early 2000. So, um, you know, it's been a nice ride. I mean, well, it's been a, it's been a bumpy ride for Microsoft, but they're kind of breaking out to new highs now. Uh, the thing here is that the company is in a big transition mode, transitioning to cloud subscription-based, uh, you know, plans for their software, uh, and those those are all happening. It's nice. The problem is, it's it, that transition is the overall growth of the company is is going to suffer a little bit as they make this transition, but. Yeah, they beat earnings, they beat revenue expectations. Um, the growth for Office 365, which is the cloud-based version of Office, up 70% uh, in the quarter. They mentioned that Azure, which is, of course, their AWS cloud computing solution, more than doubled revenue there. They didn't really break it out at that minute level. What I wonder is, with, with Microsoft, you can't expect a lot of growth from Microsoft, but I think what you can expect as a shareholder is a lot of buybacks and a growing dividend. They've got $60 billion in net cash. I think I would expect them to probably accelerate the buyback, which they've been actually been doing, uh, and raise the dividend. So, you know, you have a really solid competitive position business here. Maybe it gets you mid to high single digits growth, but maybe with the buybacks and the dividend, you can get actually a pretty decent return from Microsoft. Although, if you go back and it's February of 2014 when Satya Nadella becomes the CEO, stock is up almost 50% that time. I think people were optimistic about Nadella. I don't think they were stock up nearly 50% no, in less than two years optimistic. He's earned, he's earned whatever paychecks have come his way. So, the year and a half. you know, uh, the theme of profits much higher than expected, I think, goes along nicely with the other theme here with these three companies, which is just how they are all winning big on the investments they've made in the cloud. And I'm wondering if all other businesses that are trying to make a go of it in cloud computing should just, you know, pull up stakes and leave town. It's good. It's a good question. Stakes, I don't know about that, but I do think what we will see and what we are seeing now, we'll continue to see is is at least the recognition of of these big players in the space. And we were talking about this earlier today with Rackspace, right? I mean, they they really we were kind of wondering if there was a future for this company because of everything that Amazon had been doing, and and they are they are forming an alliance with Amazon really to to Rackspace's benefit. I mean, I think you could say that Rackspace needs Amazon more than Amazon needs Rackspace, but it opens it opens Amazon up to a little bit of a different clientele, and it's certainly gives Rackspace a bit more of a, a reason to be, so to speak. And so, I think you'll see probably some more alliances form here out of this. And just to add to that, it's really hard to be more efficient than Amazon or Microsoft or a really, really big company in that in the cloud. I'll say one more thing to you, Chris, and that is that there is, a, there is a risk out there, and I think it favors the big players like Microsoft and Amazon and Google. And that's because it, if you look at Europe, the European Union, to run cloud-based businesses in Europe, you actually have to have the existing hardware architecture in each country. So you can't do e-commerce in Germany unless your you know your server farm is in Germany. I think so. That obviously favors companies like Amazon who have the scale, but it's definitely going to hurt smaller players like Rackspace, no doubt. 
here's a company that really doesn't fit with the previous three, except in one regard. <laughs> McDonald's <laughs> stock up more than seven percent this week after third quarter profit and revenue, both coming in better than expected. Uh, really good same store sales in the U.S. for the first time in a couple of years, Jason. And this doesn't include the breakfast all day. Yeah, I mean, I think we talk a lot about businesses that are victims of their own success, so to speak. And in this case, I think that McDonald's is probably the beneficiary of its own shortcomings. I mean, this has been a business that, for the past couple of years, is, has has not really performed very well at all. They've been faced with a lot of headwinds, and it's changing uh, fast casual space, so to speak. And and uh, so, you know, we saw Don Thompson step out there of the CEO role, and Steve Easterbrook step in, and, and we were all very curious as to how exactly he was going to, uh, you know, approach this. They want to try to become a modern progressive burger company, whatever that is. But but the bottom line is you know when you bring numbers that are are you know positive comp sales across every across every segment I think that's that's obviously a sign that something has changed I think it helps that they re reorganize the business to sort of instead of focused on geography they're focusing more on markets that are that are similar so they can kind of compare apples to apples so so to speak but again I mean this doesn't reflect the the change to offer breakfast all day I mean we've seen kind of two sides to the coin there. Um, it seems that franchisees are, are at least expressing some concerns in sort of supply chain management and uh, you know throughput, so to speak. But we'll see. I think next quarter, uh, you know, the beginnings of, of whether that's going to be a real uh, you know sort of a, you know if it's going to help really bring bring results for the company. But but bottom line, Steve Easterbrook's got to be feeling really good about what's going on here, and and they, I think they've got things going at least in the right direction. Yeah, the stock up uh, about twenty five percent since Easterbrook took over as CEO less than a year ago. Simon, you interested in McDonald's hitting an all time high? I think supply chain management. I think JMO hit it right there. I mean, you've got McRib coming back. You've got breakfast all day. These things are great. And Maybe somebody's excited about. It. I know. I know. I'm not that excited. About <laughs> no, I'm not. It. But say, are they really great? The but, one but, thing I have I mean, to say, yeah. I, I have to. I love. I love the, the the marketing approach, the commercial approach to the breakfast all day, where it shows people who have submitted tweets or you know messages on Facebook to McDonald's saying, "Why can't you offer breakfast? I got showed up late. I missed breakfast." <laughs> Why? And I, I think, exactly. I think that's been great. I mean, I, I love the commercials. It probably wouldn't encourage me to personally go to McDonald's, but I, I love the commercials. I, I'll tell you personally, though, this is just a headache waiting to happen for these guys. I mean, it's all about, in and out has got what four four items on the menu. Right Right now, and they've got lines out the door of people waiting to get that. I think efficiency and, and simplicity is key for this. And I, I think you got something there. I mean, we talk about Chipotle business like that, the focus more on simplicity. We can look at Pizza Hut. We know Young Brands has been having some trouble with Pizza Hut and KFC. Pizza Hut decided to try to offer consumers more choice. And and you you need a degree in rocket science to get through that menu at this point, and it's not working out so well for them right now. So that's going to definitely be something to pay attention to. Google, Amazon. Microsoft, McDonald's, they all had a pretty good week, but they didn't come close to the week that one consumer stock had. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser, Matt Argusinger, and Simon Erickson. Rough week for Stratasys. The 3D printing company issued preliminary third quarter results that were well below previous estimates. This is the second quarter in a row they've done this, Matt. <laughs> it's been tough going for Stratasys and uh, really in any of the pure play 3D printers. I mean, it, you know, they're guiding for revenue now of between 166 and 168 million. They're going to report in a couple of weeks. That's down 18% year over year. But here's the worst of it: they're guiding for a net loss of as much as 190 million, and that's related to the their MakerBot acquisition, which they're going to write down about 180 million dollars worth. In the quarter, uh, essentially, you know, if you look at the write downs they already have and the write downs they're actually predicting they might have to make in the future, 
that business is essentially worthless today, and they paid a king's ransom for it, which is shocking. Was that the thinking going in? I mean, I remember the MakerBot acquisition. I don't remember the sentiment particularly going one way or another. Was there anyone out there saying, you know what, this could go bad real fast? Well, you got to remember, this was in the hype of the 2013 kind of 3D printing craze. And I think what Strass has looked at is we have a great commercial industrial business, but 3D Systems has got these Q printers, the consumer angle. We don't have a consumer, really a big solid consumer business. Let's go buy MakerBot. Uh, and that's just turned turned out to be a disaster because the consumer part of the 3D printing market has been a disaster. Um, and I and contrast that with uh, with Protolabs, which we can talk about, Simon. Um, there, you had revenue up 24 percent. Customers were up 24 percent. This is a company that attaches you know attacks the service side of the business. Um, and there's no claim about macro problems or 3D printing demand, which this, which Strasis is making. So, it's, it's interesting to contrast those two. It is. It's just, it's hard to extrapolate the early adopters to the mass market. It seems like when we were talking in 2013, a lot of a lot of expectations baked in of there's going to be a 3D printer in everybody's home for the next five years and stuff like that. They were seeing great results from consumers. I'm sorry, from uh, from uh, commercial customers. Right. Uh, that was doing great and the industrial side of the business was fine, but there was just a lot too much optimism, which is why they were acquiring companies which lit a lot of money on fire. And you think about just just not too terribly long ago, Jeff Bezos had a part in MakerBot when they sold that to Stratasys, and you know they had he had a number of people asking at the Amazon annual meeting last year, "What about 3D printing? What are the implications there? What's the future?" He's like, "Listen, it's neat technology, but it's not for the masses. I mean, there's no point in going out there and trying to print a toaster because there's so many things involved with trying to print a toaster. You might as well just go buy it, right? It's going to be more cost effective. That was the example he used, a toaster. And so, I mean, yeah, you you see sort of that that hype really led up to just un, unreal and unsustainable prices." You look at the year-to-date charts for Stratasys in 3D systems. I mean, it's like that Price is Right cliffhanger guy. It's like he got to the top of the mountain and just kept on going. He just <laughs> fell straight down. And he, and I'll I'll just point out that these companies are still worth in excess of a billion dollars right. each. And I, given the demand picture and the revenue growth. I, I feel like there might be more downside to come. We'll have to see. Chipotle's third quarter revenue rose 12%, but same store sales came in just north of 2.5%. Uh, that, that'd be good if McDonald's put up 2.5% comps. <laughs> But not so good for Chipotle. Simon. I'm not concerned about it, Chris. You remember last year, comps were 19.8%. Brief pause while we, while we digest that. I <laughs> yeah, mean, 20% comps for a restaurant is insane. Tough to laugh that. But so much of that was baked into price increases as we saw skyrocketing costs, not only of dairy and of beef, but also avocados. Remember the shortage we had last year? Chipotle did not have those this year. Uh, they're still getting good traffic through their stores. The number of transactions was increasing. But I'm not too worried about the, uh, the mid to low single-digit comps on this year. Shares of Valiant Pharmaceuticals down around 30% this week after Citron Research issued a short report alleging fraud, including the phrase, Enron Pharmaceuticals. That's bad. <laughs> that is bad. I haven't read the report, yeah. but I just know anytime you're attaching Enron to something, that's bad for your the re- brand. The report was damning. We have to remember this is, you know, this is Andrew Left, this is Citron, which, which you know, the Molly Fool. We've we've had some engagements with Citron. You this know, is they, their move. This is it. This is it. I mean, this is what they do. They they you know, for the most part, take a short position. They put out a a very what seemingly a sophisticated report that captures a lot of investor attention. It's distributed everywhere, and stocks get crushed. Usually, we we call it stocks getting citroned here at the uh, the Molly Fool. The problem with Valiant is there's an issue here with the way their pharmacies that they either control or own. Um, and the idea of selling drugs to these pharmacies and booking that as sales, even though these are intercompany transactions and the revenue shouldn't be booked until obviously the drug reaches the patient. That's really the heart of the claim that Citron is making. I would also point out, though, that you know, Valiant is a business that 
when it comes to public perception, they, they might have a bit of an issue. I mean, this is a company that um, spends very little on R&D. They spend less than 3% of their revenue on, on drug development, um, which is, you know, if you look at most biotechs or drug makers, they're spending anywhere from 15 to 30% of their revenue on R&D. They spend about 3%. They do most of their uh, development by acquiring other drugs, acquiring drugs that are already out in the market, and jacking up the prices. I mean, the, here are a few just examples that stand out. They, have a, they bought a heart drug called Isuprel. I'm probably saying it, saying, it, saying it wrong, but the list price for that was $4,000 in December 2013 when Valiant bought them. It is now $36,000. Uh, they bought a diabetes drug called Glumetza, when uh, the prices for that were $900 today after Valiant bought them, $10,000. And there's another one called Supermine, which is a tre- treatment for Wilson disease, which I th- assume is a, a rare disease. That went from $800 to more than $26,000 after Valiant bought them. So if you think if if you're looking for a company that's probably going to have some scrutiny regardless and already has they've been subpoenaed by the the government and the FDA um, it's this company and now you layer on this Citron report and uh, wow it's um you know you're, you're talking about a company that's lost about sixty percent of its value over the last year. Yep, I think that with Maddie is exactly right the perception issue here, but I think also as investors you just can't overvalue you know the importance of knowing what you don't know, and I think there are a lot of things that we just don't know, a lot of things a lot of people don't know, and, and in with all of this company, and Citron you can say what you will, but when there's smoke, there's usually fire, and I think with Valiant there's there's going to be some issues that we we don't know about yet. As I mentioned earlier in the show, some stocks made impressive gains, but they all compare—they uh, all pale in comparison this week to the number one gainer on the New York Stock Exchange, and that is Weight Watchers International, which is soaring on the news that Oprah Winfrey is buying 10% of the company and joining the board of directors. This stock more than doubled in a week. And we've talked before about people like Carl Icahn. They, news comes out, Carl Icahn takes a stake, the stock pops. Carl Icahn, in his greatest dreams, doesn't accomplish this. I mean, is this turning this company around? So I tell you what woke me up to the power of Oprah, and and that was you know we lived in Cairo, <laughs> Egypt, from uh, something like two thousand and two to to five and six, and it just it blew my mind the the actual sway that she held with the male population there in Cairo, Egypt. They really really hinged on every word she said. She just had a very popular brand, and and that just I, I thought wow she's on to something. And so to see this to see the reaction, I'm not well, surprised. Well, she she's a she's a market sage now. She is. All right, guys, we'll see you later in the show. Up next, we'll dig into the big banks and get a preview of the upcoming Square IPO with CNBC's Kayla Tausche. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. As earnings season kicks into high gear, the biggest banks on Wall Street have already reported their results. And here to help us make sense of it all is Kayla Tausche. She covers banking, finance, and deal making for CNBC. She's also one of the hosts of Squawk Alley, and she joins me now from San Francisco. Thanks for being here, Kayla. Thanks for having me. Is there a headline? I don't. I I know that for some investors, there's a perception that all the big banks are the same. It's uh, this monolith. Um, I know that's not actually the case, but is there a headline to the latest batch of earnings that you've seen? The headline in in my read is banks really need the Federal Reserve to raise interest rates for two reasons. One. When you think about the traditional lending model, when you can make a loan at a higher interest rate, then that's more money that you eventually make on your core business. 
The second reason why it would help the banks is because in their investment banking arms, they have desks that trade fixed income, bonds, currencies, commodities. And without people knowing a clear direction to take in the market, just a sit and wait mode, there's really not that much activity going on on the trading side. And that pretty much dried up for the investment banks. We saw Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley hit especially hard because they're so reliant on those types of businesses. But we also saw it hit J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, Citigroup. So across the board, even a 25 basis point in interest rate increase would dramatically help them and would jumpstart what has been a pretty sluggish business model over the last few years. So do you think that only increases pressure to the extent that anyone can pressure the, the Federal Reserve to raise rates in December, if not early 2016? Well, it's been nine years already since the last Fed rate hike. So if there hasn't been pressure over that time, I don't see why there would be more pressure now. Certainly the Fed is an independent body. They don't really care about the bottom line of a certain type of company or a certain sector. And the banks have been patient. They tell investors, look, a 100 basis point increase would help our bottom line to the tune of $10 billion, $5 billion. They lay out those estimates, but they're just waiting, like all of us. And I don't think that there's really anything at this point that could pressure the Fed. In fact, I think that the weakness in the global environment um, may have given the Fed more pause. That's certainly some of the language that we've gotten in recent weeks from the voting members of the Fed. So we'll see what happens in a couple of weeks when they meet. One of the common themes we hear from a lot of companies uh, across a variety of sectors this earnings season is how the strong U.S. dollar is hurting their results. To what extent are any of the big banks really hurt by the strength of the U.S. dollar? And to what extent are any of them actually helped by it? I think that there is one bank that has an outsized effect from the dollar, and that's Citigroup. It's the most global bank. They have a huge footprint in Latin America. They're very big in Asia. They've invested a lot over the last decade to become that international brand. The problem is when you see currency headwinds like we've seen, that then hurts them to a greater extent. We haven't really seen any of the banks besides Citigroup mention the dollar as even a really noticeable effect on their business. But Citigroup certainly um, laid that out there loud and clear. You mentioned Citi. Um, I'm reminded that for a couple of years before he eventually left the company, Vikram Pandit was uh, the CEO there and was really the big bank CEO who was on the hot seat more so than any others. Does anyone hold that title now? Uh, For a while, it seemed like Brian Moynihan at Bank of America was on the hot seat, but uh, in the wake of the most recent vote from shareholders to back him being chairman as well as CEO, um, maybe he's not on the hot seat. It doesn't seem like he is right now, only because a lot of the legal issues have gotten out of the way. The turnaround at Bank of America and Citigroup, for that matter, both of those banks have been going through a multi-year restructuring, and they've actually been performing pretty well. I think that will help them. You know, they say the best defense to criticism is growth when you're talking about big companies, and that's certainly the case for those two. Um, I think that when you ask CEOs how they feel about the current regulatory environment, because so many of them have already paid 
billions upon billions of dollars to the Justice Department, to state attorneys general, um, to settle some of these claims, they feel like the worst is behind them. Now, of course, a lot of this language is changing as we head into an election year. We're now remembering all the ins and outs of Glass-Steagall, and we've heard several candidates mention being in favor of bringing Glass-Steagall back, which, of course, would um, espouse a breakup of the banks. But so far, they're building up capital like the regulators want them to. Most of the big lawsuits are out of the way. And barring some very sharp rhetoric coming out of the candidates for president, I, it doesn't really feel like they're the bad guys, at least for the time being. When you're out socially with friends, with family, and... Is this what I talk about? Well, uh, no, I was going to say, when people ask you what you do, and you tell them what you do in your day-to-day life at CNBC, do you get a sense that there is any sort of fundamental misunderstanding or, or misperception that people have about banks? That's a good question. I, I, I think that there are certain types of companies that consumers just love to hate in general, banks, cable companies, airlines, companies that charge them a fee for something that they believe should be free. And banks fall into that category. Um, I I, I don't necessarily feel like there is a groundswell of antagonism from Main Street when people ask me about the banks and what they're doing. I think they, um, for lack of a better phrase, I think they view them as a necessary evil. but certainly, like all of us, they wish that some of the services were a little bit more affordable. You're listening to Motley Fool Money, talking with Kayla Tausche, one of the hosts of CNBC's Squawk Alley. One of the more anticipated IPOs of 2015 is going to take place soon, and that is Square, the mobile payments company. I think you've had a chance to look over their filing. Uh, how do they look, keeping in mind that they are about to join their publicly traded peers like Visa and MasterCard, which are exponentially bigger and better capitalized than they are? Well, certainly some of the financials for Square are incredibly impressive, and it gives you a glimpse into just how many small businesses and artisan merchants all over the world are using this technology. The company has half a billion dollars in revenues, which is no small feat for sure, The problem is they're having to spend a lot of money to bring that revenue in. In the last full year, they had losses of about $170 million. So, yes, they have half a billion dollars in sales, but um, on the bottom line, they're not close to profitable, and they're on track to lose the same amount of money this year. So they're having to hire people. uh, They're having to invest in their system. They're spending a ton on marketing and product development to compete with the likes of even Amazon, which are trying to get into this space as well, and PayPal. These are massively um, saturated companies. We're all familiar with them, and Square is competing with them on a very large basis. And it's clear, looking at the numbers, that they're having to spend a lot of money, invest a lot of money um, to do so. They don't have to spend money on a CEO, because they already have one. It's Jack Dorsey, who is also now the CEO of Twitter. Uh, which group of shareholders should feel better about the amount of time that Jack Dorsey is dedicating to their business? Because it can't be 50-50. And depending on how Square does in its first year as a publicly traded company, at some point, don't you think one of those groups of shareholders is going to start banging on his door saying, help us more? 
I think that's a, a real threat. Um, one thing that does help him, although it's a small detail, is the fact that the two companies' headquarters here in San Francisco are pretty much next door. Um, so people have said it's, it's not uncommon to see him walking down the street in the middle of the day where he's going from one job to the next job. The problem is, um, as talented and as brilliant as Jack Dorsey is, he doesn't get any more hours in the day than the rest of us. He has 24 hours, and um, the allocation of that time, I think, could be brought into closer focus, depending on how these companies do. The other thing is, these are two companies that I would argue both need a full-time, both need full-time attention. Um, you have a, a young, high-growth company that is burning through a lot of cash that's about to go public and really needs to reassure um, investors about its strengths and its market share dominance. On the other hand, you have Twitter, who is going through a little bit of an identity crisis, trying to regain its footing. And that type of turnaround takes a lot of focus as well. Um, proponents of Jack Dorsey compare him to Steve Jobs and Elon Musk, both of whom have been CEOs of two companies at once. Of course, Steve Jobs, Apple and Pixar, and then Elon Musk, um, SolarCity, SpaceX and Tesla. Um, of course, he's only head of two of those right now. Um, but so it remains to be seen whether he is a cut above and he's in a class um, of a very elite few people or whether he is a, a mere mortal like the rest of us. Final question, and then I'll let you go. Uh, in the business world this week, earnings season is kicking into high gear. But in pop culture this week, the big story is Walt Disney releasing the final trailer for the upcoming Star Wars film, The Force Awakens. People are already buying tickets, even though the film doesn't even get to theaters for another two months. And yet, Kayla, I have to ask if my research is correct. Is it true that you have never seen any of the Star Wars movies? Of all the questions you could have asked me, you chose this one. Um, unfortunately, it is true. I think I... I may have just missed that boat at that formative time in my adolescence. And then there was really never a, an impetus later on to sit down and watch them. The other question that I would love your listeners' input on is what order I should watch them in. Because now that I'm going to be sitting down and watching all of them in one fell swoop, do I watch you know one through six just in that order? Do I start with four? So the jury's still out on that one. I'll just I'll just give you my input as someone who saw the original trilogy when I was a kid, and now as a parent have have seen all the films. Skip episode one. Just skip it all together. Really? You yeah, you don't need to watch it. You don't need to watch it. Start with episode four, then go to five, go back to two and three, and then end with six. That's my yeah, advice. There are going to be people who disagree with you on that. There are absolutely going to be people who disagree. And I, you know, I don't know if you heard this story, but uh, Topher Grace, the actor, uh, was uh, trying to learn how to do editing. So he got himself the necessary editing software, and he gave himself as a project uh, the, uh, the second trilogy uh, of Star Wars films, and he edited those three films down to a single, tight, two-hour film, which... I need to get my hands on that. We all do. I, I felt like when Disney bought Lucasfilm, they should have just gone to Topher Grace and say, give us your copy, we'll buy it, here's a bag of money, we'll put that out in theaters too, but but uh, unless you, you have an in with Topher Grace, I think I think you're in for you know five, maybe all six of the movies. Yeah, it's going to it's going to take up quite a chunk of time, but I think it's a worthy investment. 
Don't ask her about Star Wars, but you can ask her anything about banking, finance, deal-making, and you can catch her every day on CNBC's Squawk Alley. Kayla Tashi, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Coming up, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. This is Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill, and joining me in studio once again, Jason Moser, Matt Argusinger, and Simon Erickson. Halloween is next weekend, guys, and according to the National Confectioners Association, candy sales in the United States are expected to top $2.5 billion. So, before we get to the stocks on our radar, let's just go around the table. Do you have? I'm looking for an underrated and an overrated. I'm sure we all have a favorite candy, but I mean, there's a big candy universe out there, Jason. So, Surely. when you look at it, what are you seeing as overrated and what's underrated? You know, whenever I'm going through my kids' Halloween bags, like making sure the candy in there is okay. I'm, after I'm, after I'm, they're asleep. After they're asleep. Well, they could be awake either way. I'm not really, I mean, that's, that's the least of my concerns. But anytime I find a peanut butter Twix in there, Chris, that's like something everybody talks about Twix. It's the only candy with cookie crunch. You know, that's, that's all good. But the peanut butter Twix, that I think is underrated. Rated. Nice. Uh, to me, Whoppers are a total cop out. I feel like you go buy those big bags of candy at the store, and you're like, "Oh, it's got like Laffy Taffy, and it's got like hundred thousand dollar bars." And oh, Whoppers! What the hell do I do with those? Whoppers are are just way, way over oversold. You know what? You can just drop them off at my desk. Really? I'll take you're a Whoppers off. guy. I'm a Whoppers guy. No offense. All right, let me let me rethink this. Maddie? I'll start with overrated. I, I think Smarties are so overrated because you know the thing is you can go buy a bag. Bag, and there's like there's like a thousand of those things in, but you know you'll have a you'll have a person that's standing at their house giving out one of those each, and so Smarties way overrated, underrated for me. It's just a personal favorite, but I really I really like Rolos, and, yeah. and just yeah. you don't you don't see Rolos that often anymore. People no. don't really buy them. And just caramel and chocolate. Yeah. Simon, underrated Peachios. These what? are these are the little rings that taste like peaches. They, they've got about 150 percent of your daily dose of sugar. Saw me those at the desk the other day. <laughs> they exist. This Fantastic. sounds suspiciously <laughs> like fruit. Fantastic! You got to trust me on this one. Okay. They're gummies. Underrated. They're gummies. Gum, gummy, yes, yeah. gummy, gummy flavored uh, like peaches. Uh, overrated candy corn. Does anyone even eat that anymore? I oh, love candy I do corn. Like candy corn. Yeah. Yeah. You throw a bowl of those things at my desk, and man, they're just they're yeah. not gonna last. I think a little goes a long way with the candy <laughs> corn. I think there's a reason we only see it once a year. <laughs> Steve Broido, do you have uh, some thoughts on this issue? So underrated would definitely be the Andy's mint. I've yet to receive one in a candy bag, but if I were to, <laughs> I would be thrilled. Overrated Tootsie Tootsie Rolls. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. They do have those Andy's Mints at the Olive Garden, though, right? They Steve? do indeed. Oh, there we <laughs> now go. Now we're connecting the dots. There we go. It all runs <laughs> All right, uh, let's get to the stocks on our radar. And Steve Bright, I'll hit you with a question. Jason Moser, you're up first. What are you looking at this week? Yeah, I'd feel remiss if I didn't bring up Under Armour here. Ticker UA, they had earnings uh, come out this week, and the market has certainly reacted to the downside here, but it was a very, very good quarter. Our expectations unreasonably high possibly i mean it's never a cheap looking stock but you know i put kevin plank in the same kind of group with jeff bezos when you talk about ceos founders who are passionate and have the drive when it comes to their businesses they had their first billion dollar quarter in company history footwear is becoming uh, just a mammoth part of this company and is continuing to grow very fast. Uh, I just there there are so many reasons to to really be optimistic about what they're doing and where they're going. Tremendous market opportunity still to go, and I think the market's opening uh, opening up a little bit of an opportunity here for shareholders that you know have the uh, have the ability to think a little bit more long term. Steve, 
Yeah, are they are they really adding any value in the shoe arena? I feel like running shoes and, and and you know sports shoes and whatnot. I don't know. Under Armour are they doing anything? They seem like everybody else. <laughs> well, Steve, I do know. I actually own a pair of Under Armour running shoes, and I love them. <laughs> And you know, I should have worn them today with my Under Armour pants. Yes, my Under Armour pants. These slacks, let me tell you, I can't say enough good things on the golf course. They're a delight. Matty Argusinger, what are you looking at? Uh, you know, I'm going with I'm going with Twitter, TWTR. Um, so I love this move by the now permanent CEO, Jack Dorsey. Uh, he's giving a third of his personal stake in Twitter. It's worth about $200 million. He's distributing that out to employees. Um, you know, Tom and David, if you're listening here. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I love this move. You know, they just they, Twitter just recently went through some layoffs, but uh, now I think Dorsey has the workforce that he wants. He's got the focus, um, and he's giving the existing employees a major, major uh, morale boost. And uh, you know, he he tweeted shortly after this and said, you know, as for me, I'd rather have a smaller part of something big than a bigger part of something small. I'm confident we can make Twitter big. I love that. Steve wrote a question about Twitter. As an investor, do you use Twitter to get news? I do. Twitter is my number one source for news, actually, these days. I would be remiss if I didn't mention you can follow this show on Twitter at <laughs> Motley Fool Money. Nice Simon Erickson, what are you looking at? Chris, I'm going with Illumina, ticker ILMN. This is a company we recently added in one of my higher conviction ideas on the MDP watch list, so feel free to go check that out. Illumina makes genomic sequencing machines. So back in the 90s, we had the Human, human Genome Project. Took 15 years and $3 billion to successfully sequence a human uh, being's genome. Now that costs $1,000 and a couple of hours, thanks to the progress that Illumina has made. But personalized medicine is just really taking off right now. Because it's much more affordable, there's biopharmaceutical, there's hospital, uh, you know, customers like these that want to understand how diseases are interacting with each uh, patient that they have. I think this is the right business to, to play this trend. They're getting 56% of, of revenue from high-margin consumables, and I really like them right now. Steve? Why did so many of the uh, g genetic companies fail in the early 2000s? Uh, a lot of it was, was cost-related, very high fixed cost to have the machinery, which has come down quite a bit now, uh, Steve. But also, you're getting much better information. So if you're able to see things at the genomic level and seeing how things are interacting with one another, uh, it increases your, your chances of success of having a, a blockbuster drug. Illumina, Twitter, Under Armour, three pretty interesting ideas, Steve. I don't know. None of them actually sound that compelling to me right now. <laughs> I'll go with Illumina. <laughs> All right. Simon Erickson, Matt Argusinger, Jason Moser. Guys, thanks for being here. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris. thanks, everyone, for listening. Hey, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and elsewhere. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Motley Fool Money. Our engineer, Steve Broida, our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. We'll see you next week. Hey.